Good morning, everyone. For those of you who are new here, I am Chris Dirksen, the main teaching pastor here at Southland. And, and uh, last week I started a, a, a little series I'm doing right now in January on true spirituality. And uh, how many of you gave out some cups of water last week? I hope you, uh, you did that. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. And don't snicker, married couples. And uh, if you weren't, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. Because uh, true spirituality is not what a lot of people think it is. And I think a lot of Christians are, are going around in their lives with a false sense of guilt, with a false sense of what it is that pleases God and condemnation, and they don't know what to shoot for in their lives because they have a false picture of what, spirit, what it means to be a spiritual person. And so today I want to carry on with that topic, but first let's just ask Jesus to really minister to us and speak to us here this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, thank you that we are loved. Thank you that we are loved deeply. Thank you, Jesus, for this church body. I pray that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would minister to us powerfully, helping us to have a right world view. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to please you? In your name we pray, amen. I want to develop again, like I said, this idea of true spirituality further here today. And first, I just want to talk a little bit about God's heart. Um, before we can get into what is true spirituality, we have to talk a little bit about God's heart because I think lots of us as Christians go through our lives with this sort of subconscious, vague uh, uh, feeling of condemnation. It's not that it, we're always thinking about it. It's almost more like it's in the background. But a lot of us go through life, isn't this true, with this vague feeling of condemnation and guilt. And I think a big part of it has to do with we don't understand what God's heart is like. And many of us have this wrong picture of God that he is austere and, and strict and that he takes no pleasure in the everyday activities of human life. So we have this picture, he's very severe, very strict emotionally, and, and that the stuff of life, uh, you know, that's not, that's not the stuff that matters to him. He takes no pleasure in that. And as a result, we have this feeling that goes with us through life, subconsciously, this, even if we would never say it, we feel it. Even if we would never say God is very strict and, and, he's, and he doesn't take any pleasure in everyday life, we feel that way. And as a result, we, we think he takes no interest in human life and in the things that we take interest in. So we think, you know, when, when young people are flirting together and going on dates or when a husband takes his wife out uh, for a nice dinner or when someone gets involved in playing a sport or they pick up a hobby, or they're into exercise, or stuff like that, we have this feeling, even if we would never say it, we have this feeling that those human life things that we enjoy, we have this feeling like those are things that don't matter for eternity, and if we were really spiritual, we wouldn't do that sort of stuff. God's not into that stuff. That stuff doesn't matter to God, and if we were really spiritual, we would do other stuff, more spiritual things, and then God would be happy with us. And as a result, many of us you know, subconsciously carry this feeling around all of our lives that God is unpleased with us and like we are worldly. And there's a few passages of Scripture that seem to, to confirm this worldview. And there's a few passages of Scripture, I was going to go through, uh, you know, three or four of them in this message today, but like always, I'm a little long-winded, so we're only going to get through one, but I'll have to keep coming back to it. But there's a few passages of Scripture that, that Christians have been teaching, and, and I include myself in this, you know, um, in my younger days, and I can say that now, I'm 35 this year, I'm going to be officially old, 
okay? And hopefully some wisdom is coming with that. But in my younger days, you know, I was a bit of a zealot, and I love that. I, I, I love zeal for God, and the Bible says we got to have zeal for God. But there's a place where we can go in our younger days sometimes where we're a zealot, and it's not zeal based on truth. And I would, I would preach this passage, I'm going to show you now, uh, differently than how I would preach it now. And, and so I want to show you the, 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 the main passage here, James 4.4. 4. Then this is one of those passages that is used to build this worldview that anything you do outside of those church walls is worldly and unspiritual. And James 4 forces this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, whew, those are tough words, right? I mean, I think most of us, probably all of us, I think we read these words in our devotions or we hear someone uh, preach those words and we, isn't it true that we kind of cringe? Because, because those words seem to be saying, I mean, friendship with the world, most of us, the way we take that passage, the way we understand God's heart and the way we understand spirituality, when we read friendship with the world is enmity with God, we read, if you like anything out there, you're a friend of the world. So if you have some hobby, or if you like sports, or if you like, uh, you know, weightlifting, I don't know, I'm just pulling out random things here, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of something normal that more of you might do. Uh, you, you, I don't know, you like your job, I don't know, you get paid well. If you like any of that stuff out there, and it's not, you know, the church stuff, and thinking about missions and intercession, if you like any of the stuff out there, and you have a nice home or anything like that, you are a friend of the world, and God's mad at you, and you're an enemy of God. And that's how we feel, friend of the world, enemy with God. And this is how, over the centuries, many Christians have taught this passage. That's why for hundreds of years, uh, early on in the Catholic Church, for hundreds of years, there was this whole phenomenon of monks. Thousands and thousands of people left everything. They would leave their lives. They would leave their, their families. They would leave their homes. They'd leave their jobs. They'd leave everything in this world. They'd go out into the desert or wilderness somewhere, and they'd live in these cloisters, and they wouldn't own anything. They would live in, in you know, they, they would choose poverty, and they would live in these communes. They wouldn't own anything. They would share everything together, and their whole days would be made up of spiritual disciplines. They would pray and chant and read and fast and just sort of live, and the whole reason was because of a way of interpreting this passage that in order to be spiritual and please God, you've got to leave everything out there. You can't enjoy anything out there in the world. You just can't enjoy it because if you enjoy that stuff, you're a friend of the world, you're less spiritual, you're an enemy of God. So the most spiritual thing you can do is just pull up your roots and get out of the world. Now, most of us here today, we don't have the guts anymore to go out and become monks. But the fact of the matter is, we still think like they do, but instead of going out and living like a monk, we just feel guilty for not doing it. And so we just go through life with this kind of feeling. And the problem with this is that it relies on an unbiblical definition of the word world. It, de it, it depends. That definition, I've got to pull up everything because the world is bad. If I'm a friend with the world, I've got to pull up everything, get out, and I've got to go and leave and have no enjoyment that isn't spiritual. That definition of world in that passage is an unbiblical definition of the word world. And the thing, and I talked about this at length last year, right around this time of year, 
in my series on heaven. So if you, you can go back and reference that. But I, so I can't go over that all now, but just a quick review. I went over in that message how a lot of the way we think today in Christianity, there, is, there are assumptions that we bring to the Bible that we don't even know are there. And they're like glasses that we look at the Bible through. And uh, a lot of our assumptions are more based, and there are historical reasons for this, are more based in ancient Greek philosophy than they are in actual biblical thinking. And uh, I can't go through all the reasons for that, but I went through the reasons for that, you know, historically and stuff in that series. Um, But basically what happened is in the first couple of centuries after Jesus died and rose again and went back to, to heaven is early on, all of the Christians were Jews. Every single one of them was a Jew. And thankfully for all of us here today, because we're Gentiles, most of us here today are not Jews. Um, thankfully, the Holy Spirit says, I want to I save all the peoples of the world. So, so he started to grow the church, and the Jews started to go out to the Gentiles, people like us, and, 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 start, and people started getting saved. What happened is, over the first couple of centuries, is the church exploded in the Gentile world. And at a certain point, you know, there's a lot more Gentiles in the world than Jews. And at a certain point, there was more a lot more Gentiles in the church than Jews. And so Greek influence, because the culture of that day, the known world, was Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking. And, and, and so the influence in the church became very much a Greek mindset as opposed to Jewish mindset. And you say, well, what does that have to do with us today? It has everything to do with us today, in one point in particular. The Greeks had a very particular way of looking at life. And when they looked at life, and it was deeply rooted in philosophy and, and their religion, they, looked, they divided all of life into two categories, spiritual and unspiritual. That's how they divided life. Sound familiar? We do it today. They divided everything in life into spiritual and unspiritual. So there were spiritual activities like prayer and Bible reading and going to church and religious stuff. And then there was non-spiritual activities, which was everyday life out there in the world. You know, going and putting in a day of work and loving your family, and eating, and taking care of your body, and all these sorts of things. There was spiritual and non-spiritual. Non-spiritual stuff was inferior, not eternal. God's not as into that stuff. You're sort of wasting your time. You kind of got to do what you got to do, but you should do as little of that non-spiritual stuff as you can, and as much of the spiritual stuff as you can. Now, the thing is, that is not at all biblical thinking, and it's not how the Jews thought in, in those times. See, the Jews saw, because they were steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the Jews looked at the world very differently. They did not divide the world into categories of spiritual and non-spiritual. They said, God made all of it. How can you have spiritual and non-spiritual things when God made it? And so if God made all of it, then all of it is good, and that means everything is spiritual. So in the Jewish mindset, to go and put in a hard day's work, to go out and, and build a house or work on the farm and then come back and have a big meal and have people over and have you know, music and have a big party, to them, everything was spiritual and God was into all of it because God made it all. But over time, very quickly, within the first 100 to 200 years of the church, the Greek thinking side won out. And we came to this place in the church, and it still is rooted deeply in many of our minds today, where the things that matter to God are the spiritual things, the Bible reading, the prayer, the fasting, the going to church, all sorts of things. And yes, are they all important? Amen. I'm going to say it again and again today. I really believe you need a daily time to connect with God in his word. Yes. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but we got to a place where those are the only things that matter to God, and the rest of my life, I just kind of feel guilty for because I kind of have to do this other stuff that doesn't matter to him, and that's not eternal stuff. And so, of course, when you take that mindset to James chapter 4, verse 4, it puts a 
heavy weight of condemnation onto our shoulders. If you take that spiritual, non-spiritual stuff, if you take what we do in here at church and in our devotions as spiritual and everything else out there as non-spiritual, then when you read James 4.4, that is a heavy weight of condemnation. Because if that's what this passage is saying, then that means if you're here today and let's say you like baseball and every summer you you play two or three nights a, a week, you're on a baseball team, if that's what this passage is saying, you are a worldly sinning person and you're an enemy of God because you like worldly things. Or if you love your job and you put in a little bit of overtime every week and you get paid well for what you do for working hard and you like your job and you like getting paid well, then this passage is saying that you are a sinner and you're an enemy of God because you like something out there that's not spiritual. You're a worldly person. So is that what James means when he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I think you already know where I'm going with this, that it can't be what it means. And the thing we have to realize is there's a real dangerous thing that we do, and that is we take passages on their own, and we just kind of preach them at face value. So someone comes along, they preach James 4.4, and they just preach, friend with the world, enemy with God. And we forget that everything in the Bible has to be preached in a context of the rest of the Bible. And the Bible starts with two very important chapters, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are the first two chapters in the Bible for a very important reason. They're there because they give us context for everything else. Every single thing in the New Testament and the Gospels and Revelation and James and everything in the Prophets and the Psalms, everything in the Bible must be read in the context of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 and 2 give us the context for the Bible. So we can't read James 4 verse 4 all by itself and just take it at face value and say, I better hate everything out there and I better only like spiritual things in the church. We have to first see what is the context of the Bible. So what is Genesis chapter 1 say? Well, I'm just paraphrasing a little bit here. But essentially, Genesis chapter 1 says, God made everything that exists. Everything. Okay? He didn't make the world because he had to. He made the world because he wanted to. He just fought it up. I'm going to make a physical universe. I'm going to make an earth. I'm going to make dirt. I'm going to make little piggies and bunny rabbits and tigers and sharks. I'm going to make all this stuff. And I'm going to make human beings. And I'm going to give them physical bodies. And I'm going to make food and relationships and games. I'm going to make all of it. And so it says that out of his mind, out of nothing, he made everything that exists. And at the very end of Genesis chapter 1, what does it say about all the things that God made. What does it say? Does it say, and God said, after he made all the stuff, he made the food and the people and the wine, no, no, I mean the juice, the non-alcoholic wine, and the, uh, and, and I made all this stuff, this great stuff, physical bodies, relationships, games, I made all this sort of stuff, and my, those little human creatures down there better not succumb to sin and enjoy any of it. I mean, I made all this amazing stuff. They better be on their knees 10 hours a day so that they don't have time to do any of that other stuff. No. He made the world, everything. It came out of his mind. Relationships, fun, dirt, work, food, dinner time. He made all of it, and at the end of it, he said this, and God saw everything 
that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God saw everything that he had made. Who made everyday life? Who thought up this thing that humans would have to get together and eat a, you know, a few meals a day, and that they would have to work, and that they'd have to interact with each other, that, they'd have, that we'd have fun? I keep saying they. I guess we're human beings, and I am too. So that we would have to play games, and that we'd have music and fun and parties and all sorts of stuff. He made all of that and said it was very good. It's all amazing and wonderful. And yet, then we go to James 4.4, we completely miss all of it, and we think if you like anything out there at all that isn't spiritual, you are a sinner. Not a chance, not a chance. What this means is that you don't need to feel guilty for enjoying the good things that God has made. I mean, I meet more and more people. People have this, like, guilt complex. A lot of people have this guilt complex, and they almost... They, they feel bad. I've actually met people who they feel guilty for loving their jobs. And they just think, I love my job so much, it must be an idol. God must be just about to take it away. And we kind of snicker, and it might not be your job, because some of you just hate your job. That's a different thing. I bet you most of us here have indulged in that kind of thinking at some point or another. I like this thing so much, I bet you God's just about to take it away. That is a warped picture of God's heart and true spirituality. You love your job? That doesn't make it an idol. That means that's a gift from God, the fact that you love your job. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 to 25. Look at this. this. is in God's word. There is nothing better. Think about that. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and writes it down for all time, and remember, nothing in God's word can ever be wrong, or, or, and nothing can ever be changed. It'll go on eternally. There's nothing better than to just eat and joy, and eat and drink and enjoy God's good creation, and enjoy your toil. It's a gift from God to love your work. God loves work. He invented it. And you can be passionate about your job, and you can be passionate about eating and drinking and enjoying God's creation. You can be passionate about those things, and that does not make those things an idol, okay? Like I said before, it's almost like for some people, they're afraid to be passionate about anything. They're afraid to get passionate about photography, or they're afraid to get passionate about exercise, or they're afraid to get passionate about whatever it is that we get passionate about. People are afraid to be passionate about things because they think, if I'm passionate about it, then it's an idol. And the fact of the matter is, when we enjoy God's good creation, that we can do that. Now, of course, right away, I know the objection is, some of you are going, oh, Chris, what are you preaching? Some of you are going, if you preach that, Chris, we are going to become idolaters. We're just going to start loving the world more than we love God. Okay? No, I'm just actually preaching to you the truth. Because there's imbalances on both sides. But I know that there is this worry. People say, all my life preachers have told me that I, I, I can't let stuff in my life become an idol. And, you, and you're, they're right. And I've done that and I've preached that too and I'll continue to preach that. It is important. The Bible says we don't want to put anything in front of God. 
The problem is that we then get this guilt complex and we worry the moment I start to love something, maybe it's an idol. So let me just help you out. Okay, you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to give you two tests. I'm going to show you. They're very easy. I'm going to show you two tests how you know something's become an idol in your life. And the test is not, do I love this thing? You can love thing, the good things that God has made. He made the world and he said it is very good. You can love the good things that God has made without having to worry about it's an idol. And I'll give you just two quick tests. Put your mind at ease. Two quick tests. How do you know if something has become an idol? And you came to church on a good day because I, I would pay to know these things. And you don't have to pay here today. All right? I think this is great. Okay? Yes, how do I know something is an idol in my life? First, first test is, does it cause you to sin? Are you willing to sin in order to keep it? So the question is not, do I love this thing? Because, yeah, we can love things in this world. We can love the good things that God has made. And we can love and have passions and pursue hobbies and jobs and different things like that. We can have a passion for these sorts of things and have it not be an idol. The bigger question is not, do I love this thing? The bigger question is, am I willing to sin in order to keep it? For example, let's say you really love your job and you just love it and you trained for this thing for years and you had made investments in education and different things and you finally got this job that you really love and then let's say you know, your boss comes to you and he wants you to do something illegal. And by, and by the way, I've actually heard people in this church have told me that they've actually gone through this experience. This, this happens. And so your boss comes to you and he wants you to do something illegal and you know if you don't do it that you might not be able to keep this job that you really love. Well, that's an idol test right there. If you're willing to break God's commands, if you're willing to disobey God in order to hold on to something, then it's an idol. Okay? That's why I think for myself in my life, a better test of something, if it's an idol or not, is not, do I love this thing more than God? Because how can you tell? You love something, you love God, you love things. How do you know if you love it more than something else? Uh, the best test for me if something is an idol in my life is do I, what do I fear more than God? What do I fear more than God? If I fear losing that job more than I fear breaking God's commands, that's an idol. And I can see it in my behavior. All right? Uh, and of course, there's many other examples we could use. Uh, lying to your wife about golf, let's say. You know, you love golf. Well, it's okay. You love golf. I don't know why people love it, but people love it. Okay? So you do. You know, Pastor Tim here at the church, he loves golf. He golfs every year. And he also has devoted his life to Jesus. It's not an idol in his life. He golfs every week, though. Does it with his wife? Awesome. Great. Well, how do you know if the things become an idol? I'm passionate about it. Well, okay. When you start lying to your wife about how much you're spending on it or how much time you're, you're spending on it or whatever it is, when you have to lie or cheat or break God's commands in order to do this thing or hold on to this thing, then it's an idol. Does that make sense? Okay. That's test number one. Test number two. Test number two is, has it become an obsession? Has it become an obsession? You say, what's the difference between being passionate about something and, be, uh, and being obsessed with it? And the, the answer is very simple. You can tell by your actions. Here's how you can tell something's an obsession and not a passion. It's an obsession when you are willing to neglect God, important people, or important responsibilities and duties in your life in order to, to have this thing then it's not a passion anymore, then it's an idol. If you're going to neglect God, if you're ne going to neglect important people in your life, or you're going to neglect important responsibilities and duties in order to have this thing or go for this thing, then it's an idol. Okay? So for, for, for example, and again, I'm, I'm just picking things out of the air here. I'm trying not to pick on people I know. Okay? Motorbike racing. I hope not too many of you here are into motorbike racing. Okay? But if you're into motorbike racing, 
And you're passionate about it, okay? Is that an idol? No. Yeah, but it's out there in the world. Remember, God made the world. He made human beings. He made our interests and passions. It's not bad to be passionate about something like motorbike racing. Your wife may disagree, but that, aren't you glad you brought her to church today? Okay, so now let's say you get, so you get a motorbike racing, okay? So you spend some money on a motorbike. Okay, if you have the money to do it, good. And now you're spending every, you know, money every month to soup it up and make it look nicer and, and enter and race and all that sort of stuff. Again, if you have the money for it, good. But let's say that you're having to go into debt to do this thing. You're putting stuff on your credit card. The Bible says we should set, you know, a wise person sets aside money regularly and saves. I would say a wise person sets aside money every month and saves for the future. That's what the Bible says. Let's say now because of your hobby, motorbike racing or whatever, you're not able to save money anymore or in fact you're going into debt. Now, this passion you have is causing you to neglect some of your important responsibilities, is it not? Then, then it's an idol. Then it's an obsession. Okay? Or if it's taken away from time. Let's say you have a passion or, or something you're really into, exercise or whatever it is, and now it's taken away from time with important people in your life, like your wife and your kids. You know, at the marriage retreat. And by the way, if, if you're here today and you're married and you have not been on this church's marriage retreat, Go to the marriage retreat. It is phenomenal. It really is good. It's, it's, the, it's the best marriage stuff out there. And I've read a lot of books and been to a lot of stuff, and it really is that good. It's awesome. And it could really help you in your marriage. But, but uh, at the marriage retreat, one of the things Pastor Ray shared and the team shared with us, they've done all these studies, and I've, taught, and I've referenced this before in messages, and I just love it because it's something so practical you can hold on to. But they've done a lot of studies, and they find that the average couple... It takes about 10 hours a week. I mean, some couples a little less, some couples a little bit more, but it takes about 10 hours a week of together time, and I'm not talking just being in the same room, but like actually connecting, doing stuff together, talking, listening to each other. It takes about 10 hours a week to, to really maintain and keep an awesome, close, you know, passionate marriage, the kind God wants you to have, and that you promised to your wife and you promised to your husband when you made your vows before God on your wedding day. It takes about 10 hours a week to keep that thing going. But now let's say you have some passion or pursuit and you said, hey, Chris said I could have a passion and I didn't need to feel guilty about it. Meanwhile, this thing is keeping you so busy now, it's cutting into your time with your wife and you can't love her or you can't love your husband the way you're supposed to and you can't give the time to it. If it's causing you to neglect more important people, if it's keeping you from putting generous amounts of time into your kids, I see parents all the time and you have kids. You chose to have kids. God blessed you with kids. And now you make yourself so busy and you don't pour into your kids. What is that all about? You say, yeah, but it takes so much time. I got all this other stuff. You signed up for this when you had, fam when you had a family. You will have a lot less time than your single friends. You will watch less sports because you have people there now. So if something's taking you away from giving generous amounts of time every week to your kids and generous amounts of time to your wife, or if it's keeping you from getting up in the morning and spending the time with the Lord that you need, if it's causing you to neglect your responsibilities and neglect people, then it's an obsession. Okay? So then it is an idol, yes, okay? But if it's not doing those things, if you have a good walk with the Lord, and you're regularly in his word, and you're letting him speak to you, and, you're, and you, you are pouring into your marriage, and you're pouring into your kids, and you're taking care of your responsibilities, and now you have a passion out there, whether it be a sport or exercise or some other thing, and you love it, God made the world and it was good. You don't got to feel unspiritual for that. I'd be doing a lot better if I, was, if I was doing something else rather than this, if I had my mind on more eternal things. God made creation, and there isn't this 
there isn't this divide between spiritual and unspiritual like that. Does that make sense? Some of you should be smiling big and feeling very good because I'm lifting a big burden, I think, off of a lot of people. Paul said this. You want to see the essence of true spirituality? Look at this passage. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, a lot of people have this mistaken idea that true spirituality means pulling out of everything worldly so I can be more spiritual. And that is not what it says here in this passage. This passage shows us the essence of what true spirituality is. This passage says that the essence of true spirituality is not pulling out of everything worldly so you can be more spiritual. The essence of true spirituality is you bring Jesus into everything you do and then it all becomes spiritual. Isn't that powerful? That's the essence. See, most of us, because we have this Greek mindset, we think that the only thing you can do in Jesus' name is pray. Lord, I thank you for this food and bless it to our bodies. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. We think the only thing you can do in Jesus' name is pray. And this passage says, you can do everything in Jesus' name. There is a way to go to work in Jesus' name. There is a way to exercise in Jesus' name. There is a way to do sports in Jesus' name. There is a way to do everything in God's good creation in Jesus' name. Whatever you do, do it for God. And true spirituality is not measured. Again, this is a false, Pharisee, pharisaical spirituality that measures spirituality by what I don't do. And many of us, there's this sneaky thing, and I'm pointing straight at myself. And I'm pointing straight, straight, straight at myself. And we, are, we can so easily get puffed up into this place where we feel spiritual because of the things we're not doing. That's not spirituality. And I look at myself, I'm just using myself now. Because there's, you know, it's so easy to get puffed up. Well, you know, I don't watch TV and I don't go on Facebook and I don't do this like them and I don't follow hockey like all, you know, all of these lunatics with the Jets jerseys and, and blah, blah. And so I don't do any of these things. Whoa! And you start to feel good. Well, I don't do TV. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. Look at how spiritual I am. And God says, that's what I'm measuring is what you don't do? True spirituality is not measured by what you don't do. It's measured by how much you love God and love people. So the essence, now am I saying that you never cut things out of your life? Not at all. Like I said, you know, when something becomes an idol in your life and I give you some of those tests, you've got to cut it out. And there's also periods of time in our life, lives when we just have to simplify. Certainly we go through cycles and we get over busy and things happen and there's times we just got to take a breather, we've got to simplify. I'm not saying you never cut things out of your life. But what I'm saying is cutting stuff out of your life isn't the definition of what spirituality is. The essence of spirituality is not cutting stuff out. It's bringing Jesus in. It's bringing Jesus in. This will revolutionize your relationship with Jesus. Let's say you're into fishing. I am totally not, but some of you are. It's bizarre to me. It's really bizarre, but whatever. So you're into it. So you're into fishing. Now, a lot of people, you would never talk to Jesus about that. First of all, how are you ever going to have a relationship with Jesus when you can't talk to him about the stuff that you care most about? I mean, if I want to have a good relationship with my wife, I want to talk to her about the things that matter to me. Many of us, half of our lives, we won't talk to Jesus about because we think he doesn't care and we're kind of embarrassed that we like these things. 
The only things we ever ask Jesus are, what should I give up? What should I give up? Well, actually, it's a good prayer request every now and then. I would say once or twice a year, once or twice a year, not once or twice a week. I would say once or twice a year, go to Jesus and say, what would you like me to give up? And there's no question, there are, he will ask you to lay things down sometimes in your life. No question. I'm not saying you never cut things out. But I would say that nine times out of ten, the better question to ask Jesus is not, what do you want me to give up? The better question is, how can I bring you in? So you have a passion for fishing. Who do you think made you that way? Well, I don't want to talk to Jesus about fishing. I only want to talk to him about the stuff that he cares about. And then, so we try to talk to him in prayer. We don't know how to do it. We wonder why we can't get any love there. Or we can't walk in love with him because we don't accept who he's made us to be. And we've put a whole bunch of things off limits because we say they're unspiritual. I think one of the most spiritual things you could do is you could go to Jesus and just say, I can't help it, I love fishing. Good night. I can't get it off my brain. I'm helpless. Jesus, but you made me this way. How can I bring you into it? Ask him that. How can I bring you into this? There's a hundred things. Your life is going to become an adventure of walking with the Lord. And I don't know what he'll do. Maybe he brings up someone in your family and you guys haven't talked for, for years because there was hard feelings. He says, you're going to go on a fishing trip with that person and you're going to mend the relationship. Oh, amen, Lord, let's do it. Can I catch a master angler while we're out there? <laughs> I don't know what he'll do. He has a couple guys at work. They don't know Jesus. They think Christians are nuts. And, and, and he says, I want you to prove it to them by going on a fishing trip with them. You are nuts. Okay. And you do it. Right? But whatever it is. Now, here's the thing. I talked to a guy last night, you know, tears in his eyes. And he's passionate about football. And he said, you know, I have plays going through my head. And I feel guilty because I think I should be reading my Bible instead. And God was speaking to him powerfully saying, what would happen if you started a team? Think of the ministry you could do in this town with young people. It's not about always cutting things out. It's about bringing Jesus in. You love Jesus so much, you just bring him with you everywhere. That's the essence of true spirituality. And yes, sometimes we get carried away and something becomes an idol or we get too busy or whatever and we have seasons where we have to cut some things out. But the essence of true spirituality is I really love Jesus and I love life and I love the world he made and I'm going to bring him into everything I do. That's the essence. True spirituality. One of my favorite people from history is Eric Liddell. And uh, how many people, how many of you here, don't be embarrassed, how many of you here have watched Chariots of Fire, the movie, okay? That, that's it. That is pathetic. <laughs> Chariots of Fire, mark it down. That, for some of you, that's your assignment this week. Go and rent a movie. Chris told you to do it, okay, in a message. Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell, then Chariots of Fire is the story of one part of Eric Liddell's life. And uh, Eric Liddell, my daughter Joy right now is reading his biography. We have his bi biography and stuff too. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters from history. He was born in 1902 in northern China to missionary parents. And, uh, and in those days, missionaries didn't keep their kids with them on the, on the mission field. And so when he was old enough to go to school, they shipped him back to Scotland. And that's how missionaries did it in those days. Like, like I can't even imagine the sacrifices those people made. And so he was, he was raised in a boarding school. But, uh, you know, for 10 years, from when he was 5 to, you know, 14, 15, he only saw his parents in all that time, about 100 days. That's a huge sacrifice. But amazingly enough, 
uh, even apart from his parents, uh, you know, Eric from a young age, Holy Spirit was on him, and he had a real passion for Jesus. But in addition to his passion for Jesus, he wasn't just passionate for Jesus in the monkish sense of, you know, he just wanted to pray all the time. He was a normal boy. He also really loved running, and he was fast, very, very fast. And, uh, and so in school, he, he ran, and he was fast. They could see he was fast. He went on to college after he got out of the boarding school. He went on to college, and, and he was so fast. He was running the, he was always running the sprints. So he would run the 100 meter and 200 meter, and then he'd also, the 400 meter, which isn't quite a sprint. It's a bit longer, but it's still kind of considered a sprint. And he would run hundreds and 200s and 400s all over the British Empire, and he would whip everybody's butts, and he loved to run. And he had one of the ugliest uh, running styles ever. He would throw his head back like this, and he would flail like this when he ran. And it was, it was so ugly People from other countries, would, they would come and they, they would be at a meet, a big college meet or whatever, and they would actually laugh at him in the stands for how he looked. And the British kind of took it. They were, they were sensitive about that. Like, hey, he's one of our, our heroes, and they didn't really like that. But anyway, he had, so, and he would, he would just run like this. He had one race in 1923. He tripped right at the beginning of a 400-meter race. And, and again, it, some of you may not follow track, but if you fall in one of those sprints, the race is over. And by the time you get up, you don't have time to catch up. Plus, it, the energy to expend to catch up you don't have the burst at the end you need. He fell right at the beginning. By the time he got up, everybody was 25 to 30 meters ahead of him. He threw his head back, started flailing, proceeded to run everybody down and pass him right at the finish line before collapsing. And people, I mean, they, they saw this and they, it was, they said it was one of the greatest you know, track performances they had ever seen. And so anyway, so he was becoming more and more famous for his running. What people didn't realize is behind the scenes, he was getting pressure, particularly from his sister and some of his family members, because they were starting to pressure him. They said, we're out here on a mission field. Look at you here wasting your time with this silly pursuit of running. That kind of makes sense, too. Don't we often feel that way? Because we have this such a clear divide between spiritual and non-spiritual. And everything over here is not eternal, and everything over here is eternal. We should stop wasting our time with this stuff, and we should start doing this stuff. And this is how his sister and some of his family members felt. They're like, you know what? we got millions of Chinese people over here who are dying without the gospel, and you're wasting your time running, Eric? And they were pressuring him. Eric, come out to the mission field. Eric, what are you thinking? But Eric had a different way of viewing things. Again, he didn't view spiritual, non-spiritual, and he's quoted in the movie. Well, it's one of the, my favorite quotes of all time. He's quoted in the movie as saying, God made me fast, and when I run, I can feel his pleasure. And something that his family members couldn't see is all they could see was spiritual, non-spiritual. What is running? What a temporal, you know, pathetic thing. Not, no, no eternity there at all. What they couldn't see is that through Eric's love and, of running and joy in running and love for God is that God was giving Eric a different mission field. It's not that, you know, Eric wasn't going to the mission field. He already was on the mission field. And as I was researching his life a bit this week, just getting ready for this message and stuff, I was... I was blown away by how many testimonies and news articles and quotes by competitors, teammates, and spectators who over the years of watching Eric race and racing with Eric who were touched by Jesus, by his absolute joy and love for running and how he loved Jesus and brought those two things together. And he would constantly, constantly talk about Jesus to everyone. 
I mean, he had, because he was becoming so famous, because he was so, so fast, he would have meetings and preach to people with Jesus, and people would just flock there. And he would, his humility, his character and races, and how he, would, how he would love people and talk to people who he had just beaten or who were racing against him and take care of people, he was touching people for Jesus all over the place. But this running thing is so not eternity. What people didn't know was that God was preparing an even bigger platform for him. God wanted Eric to preach to the world. And in 1924, the Olympics were in Paris, France. And so Eric uh, was put on the British team immediately. And he was easily the fastest guy in Britain. And he was favored because of his times to win the gold in the 100 meter. The 100 meter dash is the biggest event in the Olympics and, and always has been. Fa- you know, fastest man in the world title. And he was heavily favored to, to win the event in the 100 meter dash. And so, the, you know, the whole British Empire was just pumped about this guy. And they were getting excited about the Olympics. And then just a few months before the Olympics were about to begin... The schedule came out for, you know, the different events when they were going to happen. And the 100-meter dash heats that Eric was, was signed up for were supposed to be run on a Sunday. Now, for us here at Southland, you know, church, Sunday, Saturday, it's no big deal. I mean, we have church on both days, so you can, you can kind of pick which day you're going to make the Lord's Day. But back in those days, church was only on Sunday. And for Eric to run on the Lord's Day, I mean, this is the one day, he said, where we can get together and we can, we can think about God, and we can hear his word, and we can pray, and we can have fellowship together. And so for him to compete on a Sunday, no way. He would never do it. He said, there's no way. And uh, you remember before, and so I mean, the pressure was huge. I mean, the Prince of Wales himself and parliamentarians were contacting Eric, and they're like, Eric, what are you thinking? It's the gold medal, the 100 meters, it's the Olympic Games. I mean, go to church every Sunday before do this, go to church every Sunday twice, I don't care for the rest of your life, just miss this one and win us the gold. I mean, he's under intense pressure. Remember what I said to you before about how you know if something's an idol, right? Are you willing to compromise your principles? Are you willing to disobey God? And Eric, this thing, he was he passionate about running? He was passionate about running. But he, was he willing to, to disobey what he thought was a command of God that you should not run on Sunday? He would not do it and he stood strong. Now the amazing thing is, if they had run the 100-meter dashes on Saturday or if Eric would have, would have compromised his principles and run on Sunday, if he would have just run the 100-meter dash and won the gold medal, I wouldn't be talking about him today. I mean, they wouldn't have made the movie Chariots of Fire and the, the world would be poorer for it, but uh, they wouldn't have written all the books. I mean, he would have had no impact. If he had just won the gold medal and run the race, nobody would be talking about him. And, and I know that because nobody knows who did win the gold medal in the 100-meter dash that year. Nobody knows who won the 100-meter dash in the 1928 Olympics, the next ones, or the 1932, or almost all the rest of them. We only remember the most recent one, but the guys who win the gold don't get remembered for all time. Eric is still remembered today. His, his story is touching millions of people through books, through the movie, through just all this sort of stuff. He's got you know, a whole legacy in Britain. They learn about him in school, all because he stood up for something. And so he had this, he had this, there was these two choices before him. One group of people was saying, quit your running and head out to the mission field and do something spiritual. He could have given up his running and done the spiritual thing and millions of people would not have been touched by his story. Even today, people are inspired by his story to love God more and commit to God more. Or he could have kept his running and he could have given up on God. He could have disobeyed God. He could have gone against his principles, in which case his, his life wouldn't touch anyone either. But Eric didn't do either of those things. He didn't throw out the running and just say, that's, that's not spiritual stuff. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
He says, part of who God made me to be. There isn't spiritual and non-spiritual things. It's all, where is God? That's the spiritual thing. Where does he want me? He didn't throw out his running, but he also didn't throw out God in his running. He was absolutely committed to God, and he absolutely loved his running. Now, to wrap this story up, I just love what a picture of what true spirituality looks like. How this thing ends is amazing. Eric wasn't a spoiled sport like so many people who call themselves Christians today. He didn't just, well, they won't change the schedule for me. And I'm not running the 100-meter dash and become a martyr. That wasn't how he thought. He said, God made me fast. I love to run. I love to touch people. I'll just sign up for a different event. So he signed up for an event that wasn't run on Sunday. He signed up for the 400-meter, which was not his strongest race. By, by far, the 100 was better. And it was not the one he had trained for. So he's going into Olympics now in an event he's not trained for and that he's not nearly as good at. I'll just do it, right? I run. This is what I do. It's no spiritual, non-spiritual. I'm just going to do it. What an attitude, hey, of joy. They put him in this race. There was two Americans in that race who were heavily favored to win. They ran great times. They were awesome at the 400 meter dash. They put Eric in the absolute worst lane in the field. They put him in the eighth lane. If you watch the 400 meter dash at all, you'll know that the runners are all staggered around the track. And the eighth lane is the one on the outside. You can't, and it's the worst lane to be in because you can't, you're out in front the whole time. You can't see what the other runners are doing. You can't see what their tactics are, what their strategy is, until the last curve when they all go blowing by you. So, but whatever, Eric, God made me fast. When I run, I feel it's pleasure. I'm running for God. I love running, I love God. Put him on the eighth lane, and uh, he said, you know, I'm not big on tactics anyway. His strategy was this. I'm going to run as absolute fast as I can the first 200 meters, and in the second 200 meters, I'm going to throw my head back, flail, try not to collapse, and try to run faster. So that was his strategy. So the gun goes off. He can't see anybody else in the race. He takes off as absolutely fast as he can. He holds nothing back. Later they talked to the other runners and they saw him go out on, on the first 200 meters and they thought he was on a suicide mission or something. They thought, we're gonna, this guy's going to be, you know, 300 meters, we're going to be stepping over his body. And amazingly enough, he threw his head back, he flailed his arms, and he just about did collapse. But he finished that race in world record time. He was about 20 feet ahead of the next best guy. And he won the gold, the gold medal in the 400 meter dash as well. And his story lives on and many, many, many people have been touched by the story of Eric Liddell. Through running. See, spirituality isn't about what looks spiritual to human beings. It's about who did God made me to be and where does God want me and how do I bring God into it. So if we come back now to James chapter 4, 4, we're back full circle where we started this message. And we looked at that, you adulterous people, you do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When James says, don't be a friend of the world, he's not saying that you can't live life. He's not saying that everything out there that God made is inherently evil. Not at all. He's not talking about the world as food and drink and games and fun and relationships and all the stuff that's out there. That's not what he means by world. I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the worldly spirit out there. How many of you know our culture out there, there's a spirit in the world out there? And our culture constantly bombards us with this message and many, many Christians succumb to it. But our culture constantly bombards us with this message, live for the here and now. Live for yourself. 
It bombards us with lust. It bombards us with temporary things. It bombards us to think only about ourselves all the time. It bombards us to think we can figure things out on our own. We don't need to ask God or seek God. And many Christians go in for it. They come to church on Sunday, but they never think about God the rest of the week. They only think about themselves. And James says, if you're going to be one of those people who's a friend with that spirit, you are an enemy of God. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian. I don't care if you become a member. I don't care if you go to church every week and if you go to cell. If you're going to become a friend with that spirit, you are an enemy of God. But if you are a person who in your heart, your heart is soft to Jesus and you actually love to obey his commands, this passage was not written for you. In that case, James 1.17 is what applies to you. And that is this. In that case, the good things of this world are gifts from God that should be enjoyed, as he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The mark of a truly spiritual person is not that you feel like you have to quit everything that is in this world, but rather that you love Jesus deeply and desire to bring him into everything you do out there in the world. I want to give you a challenge for this week, but before I do, I want to put one more thing up on that PowerPoint, and I don't have time to develop this. I just want it there. Some people might still be thinking, I know some of you are worried. You're like, Chris, if you preach this message, people are just going to go out there and they're going to stop serving God. They're going to stop, and they're just going to do worldly things. Yeah, yeah, there's always that danger. There's a danger anytime you preach the truth that people are going to take it and just ungodly people are just going to run with it and go somewhere ungodly with it. I think the, I think, I think the one key in all of this is that you live a centered life. A centered life is someone who every day spends time in God's Word, quiet time with the Lord in God's Word. If you are every day in this thing and you're letting the Holy Spirit examine you and you're letting the Holy Spirit convict you and you want to follow Him and you're praying to Him, you're not going to get off track and be making all kinds of idols and get over busy with the world and not think about God. If you're going to do that every day and center your life on the Holy Spirit and be in the Word of God and the Word of God is convicting you and, and bringing repentance in your life, then you can go out the rest of the day and you can bring Jesus into everything you're doing without making those things an idol. So here's my challenge to you for this week. Here's my challenge. In your quiet time, which you should be doing every day in the Word, letting God speak to you as you're centering your life on God and God's Word, sometime this week, I want you to go through a whole bunch of things in your life, your job, your family, your hobbies and passions, your daily routine. And I would challenge you to write this down. I challenge you to just to write this down now somewhere on your hand, on your piece of paper, on your Bible, whatever, and actually do this and go through. Some of you say, I hear people say, I can't hear God. You ask God some of these questions, I guarantee you're going to hear him speak. Go through your job, your hobbies and passions, your daily routine, your family, and then I want you to ask for in each of those things, spend some time, different days, do one of them on one day, do one of them on another day, whatever you want to do. And on each one, ask God, how can I bring you into this? How can I do this in a way that honors you? Do you have an assignment for me in this? I guarantee you, you bring your hobbies to God like this, you bring your job to God like this, you bring your family like this, to God like this, he is going to speak to you and you're going to begin to have a relationship with Jesus because you're talking about stuff that matters to you and matters to him and that's how relationship is built. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you that everything you made is good. Thank you that you love us. I pray here at this church for a release of your Holy Spirit, a revival of joy, a breaking of condemnation, 
that we can go out into the world and bring you into everything we do, whether it be running, exercise, sewing, knitting, I don't know, everything, Lord Jesus, we're going to go out there filled with the Holy Spirit, so loving you and so bringing you to the other people. And we're just going to make a huge difference for you. And we're going to enjoy our lives more and we're going to enjoy our relationship with you more too. I thank you for what you're going to do. In your name I pray, amen.